The Table 40 Podcast with Matt and Leslie Holiday is presented by Sports Spectrum and the Sports Spectrum Podcast Network. For more shows and stories on the intersection of sports and faith, check out sportsspectrum.com. Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome back to Table 40. Uh, Leslie and I are here in Sarasota, Florida. Um, but today's guest is... I'm so- kind of nervous, I'll well, be honest. He's a professional podcaster, unlike <laughs> us. Um, he's a former ESPN producer, uh, author to a couple books now, which is impressive, Live to Forgive, and The Uniform of Leadership. He's the director of the media team for Sports Spectrum, which is over our podcast. So he's sort of our boss. So if he doesn't like our podcast, he could fire us. Um, but we are uh, excited to have you on, Jason, and we appreciate it. And we'll try to be as professional as possible. Let's not be professional, Matt. Okay, Let's good. just have a conversation. Don't hey, worry about I'm any good. of that. But this is yeah. a treat. Thank you for inviting me because I want people to know this wasn't my doing. You know, I was calling you and saying, guys, you got to have me on your show. That was not the case. But yeah, Leslie, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> the money, the check is in the mail, by the way. Yeah. But Leslie said, hey, we want to talk to you. And I was honored to be asked. So thanks for having me. Well, it's been such a neat journey for us, Jason, honestly, because uh, what we're learning now, I think we've done almost 70, 70 shows. Can you believe that? We've done almost 70 shows. Anyway, but what we've learned now is Matt and I are just simply, we're just storytellers. And so we're so grateful for, you know, this opportunity to be able to use this platform that you created essentially for mm-hmm. us to help tell people's stories and try to glorify the Lord in the process. And I think that um, it's been a real honor for us to be able to kind of come under your leadership because the first couple of shows I was talking to a girl recently and she <laughs> said, Hey, I want to, I've been listening to the first couple of shows of your podcast. And I'm like, Oh no, don't do that. I was like, I was like, fast hang forward, fast forward or yeah, or hang in there with us. So we really appreciate your gracious. Well, I leadership. just think it's, it's interesting. Like when having all these guests, like to hear everyone has a story. Right. And I think that, that's been cool is to, is to like, even, I don't want to say, you know, we have a lot of athletes and, and people, people would consider famous on our, on our show or whatever, but everyone has a story. And, and I think it gives me a perspective and even just coaching college kids or people you come in contact with on the street of, of everyone has an interesting story of kind of how they are, where they are. And, and so I've, I've found that interesting that in getting to do this, to hear and even some of my friends that I know really well to find out things that I had no idea. And so right. I think it's been cool that, as you probably experienced in a lot of your conversations, that it's just neat to kind of get to know people and hear people's stories. Yeah, everybody's story matters, too. That's what's cool about it, you know. And some people, I think, um, don't think their story matters because it might not be this glamorous redemption story or maybe they're not famous with millions of followers on social media. But the more you talk to people, especially in a forum like this on a podcast, the more you realize that, you know, really everybody's got a great story and it's important to, to share them. So, and you guys are doing an awesome job. I've told you that on text, but I'll tell you that publicly here as we record that you guys have been doing a great job and I'm, we're glad to have you as part of our team. All right. Well, let's start from the beginning of your story, Jason. We want to know about young Jason. Tell us about all of it. Like, did you play sports? What was your favorite food? No, just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Young Jason only cared about sports. That's the honest truth. Um, When I was, I feel like when I came out of the womb, but when I was a kid, I mean, my earliest memories of being alive are revolved around watching sports with my dad or watching sports with uh, my grandfather. Um, I, I love sports. I played it as well. I played little league and played baseball up to high school level, 10th grade or so, uh, played high school basketball. Um, so basketball all throughout middle school and high school and, uh, played a little bit of football in the backyard, we'll say. Um, but I just was afraid of the, of the workouts and the calisthenics and getting hurt. And I was like, yeah, football, maybe not for me. That was my brother's sport. Um, but I love watching football and I used to go bowling as a kid too, and bowling in a, in a little youth league there and, and love that as well. So sports really was what it was all about. And I think I realize now, as I've gotten older, that it really served as an escape from just life. And, you know, my parents were divorced when I was five and, um, you know, I'm, if we get into it, great, but like, that's what I wrote my first book about live to forgive. I had a broken relationship with my dad, um, who was an alcoholic and, you know, was 
very verbally abusive and had his own struggles that he had to work through. And so for me to escape in many ways, or even to bond with my dad in some ways was sports. That was the one thing we had in common. And honestly, still to this day, it's the one thing we have in common that we talk about a lot is sports. Um, so that's where the love of sports began. And a lot of what took me on the trajectory that I went on started because I would watch games every week. We're talking every sport too: baseball every Saturday and Sunday with my grandparents every during the week, I would watch the old WPIX channel 11 in New York city and watch the Yankees and WOR channel nine and watch the Mets uh, growing up in Albany, New York. And, uh, you know, football season, it was the Cowboys and the giants. That's who I watched and um, basketball. I love the Boston Celtics and that's been my team since. So I, I always watched sports from a young age and still to this day, I've, I've rooted for the same teams. So I have not been a bandwagon fan. That's all <laughs> we'll say, Matt. <laughs> How about a favorite player growing up? Oh, that's easy. So Daryl Strawberry um, from oh, the Mets. That's a fun event. Uh, it, it's my hero. As 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 a kid growing up in the in the eighties, um, I gravitated towards the Mets in 1983, right before they became, you know, what turned out to be those crazy 1980s Mets teams. But Daryl Strawberry, number eighteen, really him and Dwight Gooden, um, when they both came onto the scene in '83 and '84. I fell in love with them. Like they were my guys. I had to get all their baseball cards. I kept notebooks with their stats. I mean, I was just a nerd of all sports nerds, but I loved watching both of those guys play and became such a huge fan of them. So when was the first time you met them? Because I know you've met them and, and Daryl, especially uh, with his life changed and we've had him at PAO and yeah. I'm sure you've had many conversations with him, but when was the first time you met those guys? That's such a great question because it didn't come till much later. I mean, I was, let's see, I met Daryl in 2000 and I think it was 2010 or 2009 um, when I was at ESPN and working at ESPN um, allowed me to meet a lot of really cool and interesting people and people that I grew up and watched and certainly people that I loved. But when I met Daryl, uh, you're meeting your hero, your baseball hero, but there was way more to that level of friendship or even just relationship that Daryl and I had developed just by spending a day together at ESPN because of his redemption story, because of his faith, because of the broken relationship he had with his dad, very much like me. And uh, Matt, you'll get a kick out of this. The day Daryl came to ESPN, I was so nervous and he came by himself and he spent the day there. He was promoting a book and I was a producer at that time at ESPN and able to kind of handle the guests that came through our offices in Bristol, Connecticut. And usually when people come and do the ESPN car wash, which is what we called it, they come with entourages of people, agents and assistants and PR people and friends. Even Daryl came with nobody. He came by himself and I was assigned to him. And so it's just me and Daryl for eight hours at ESPN. And so you, you take him to the cafeteria and you have lunch with him and all that. I wanted to ask him a thousand questions about the 86 Mets guys. I did. Can I tell you, this is the God's honest truth. We didn't talk or we didn't talk um, the 86 Mets or really any kind of baseball at all the entire day because it started out in the morning. He just asked me about my life and my journey. And the next thing, you know, we're at lunch having this deep, intimate conversation about faith and redemption and forgiveness and our dad and our broken relationships with our dads. And I'm like, what is happening right now? I'm in a therapy session with Daryl Strawberry, a counseling we session. We haven't the Mets yet. Right. We, we, and honestly, we never did that day. It took Dang you it. a couple of years later. And I told him that story. And he's like, just ask me whatever you want about the Mets, Jason. I'm like, I know, but we've developed a friendship. And I don't want to feel like a fanboy when I'm around you. Um, so that was a really great opportunity. And then not more than a year later, uh, Doc Gooden came to ESPN for kind of a similar event and we connected in a similar way. Um, it wasn't as deep, I would say, or intimate or best friends type of situation, but we talked a lot about addiction and my dad's situation. There's a really cool story in my first book that when Doc came, Dwight Gooden came to ESPN, my dad was at his lowest point. It was a really bad time for him. He had, uh, he was admitted into the hospital. He was uh, in a deep, deep depression. Uh, anxiety, his, his alcoholism was at his peak. And don't you know, Doc Gooden, who's been through that as well, very publicly said to me, what's your dad's number? And I said, are you kidding me right now? He goes, no, what's your dad's number? I want to give him a call and encourage him. Wow. And I'm like, are you kidding me? 
Doc Gooden wants to call my dad. I said, of course. And I had to warn my dad, um, who, by the way, at that time, him and I weren't really speaking much, but I had to give him a call and say, dad, you're going to get a call from Dwight Gooden. And he just, even in his state of, uh, you know, a really bad state, couldn't believe what I had just told him. I said, just if, you, if somebody calls and claims they're Dwight Gooden, yeah, just know that they exactly. actually are. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he called him and encouraged him. And my dad still says to this day that there was a lot of things that helped him get sober, but that was one of them. Um, I, I, just an encouraging call from Dwight Gooden, which to me, that meant everything um, because uh, he didn't have to do that. You know, and he meets millions of people every day. And for him to do that meant a lot. So it was pretty cool to meet your heroes, though. That's for sure. I was, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about your book just a little bit more, Jason. Live to forgive. So I'm reading the title because it's, it's really powerful. Mm. Live to forgive, moving forward when people, I, I actually went away. And so, <laughs> oh, but, but I, I love it. Live to forgive, moving forward when those we love hurt us. Yeah. So I think like the moving forward part to me, is, is just, that's real pivotal in this journey, I would assume. And so let's talk a little bit in more depth about, about your book and that journey. And um, I don't know how to encourage people to just continue to move forward when people that we love so much hurt us and forgiveness, well, peace and all of those things. Yeah. Forgiveness, Leslie, it's such a important topic and it's so um, I think it's just such a difficult topic for so many because we've all been hurt. We've all had situations where we've either hurt someone or someone has hurt us. And we've all had to come to a point in our lives, no matter what we believe, whether we're Christians or not, we have to make that decision. Are we going to forgive the other person? And um, for me, that was a, a process that lasted a long, long time with my father and the relationship I had with him. I mean, I really didn't understand the damage that was being done by my dad and the pain that I was going through, probably until I was through high school and into college a little bit, you know, 18, 19 years old. But as I got older and as I started to, I guess, put my, <clears throat> my relationship with my dad kind of to the side and it was always there. It was kind of, you just kind of dealt with it, but I have a chapter in my book called boxes in the attic. And what it is, is it's really, we don't deal with our emotions. A lot of times we kind of store them away like a box in the attic, but that box isn't gone. It's still up there. And eventually we got to pull the box out of the attic, open it up and see what's inside. And so for me, I kind of stored all this anger and bitterness towards my father away or as much as I could into this box in the attic for years. Um, but every time my dad would drink uh, and he'd usually call us, he wouldn't spend a lot of time in person with us, but he'd give us a call and he'd usually be drunk. And I would just get so angry at him when he would, when he would call us and he would say some nasty things when he was under the influence. So it wasn't fun to go through with him. But as I got older and I became a Christian at 27 years old, and I started to understand about forgiveness a little bit more and certainly salvation and the cross and Jesus and what, what all of this journey with Jesus meant. Right. But that doesn't mean just because I knew it, that I could instill that, install that into my life and implement that into my life in the best way possible. And I would say I started to grow in my faith and change on some levels, but when it came to forgiveness, especially with my dad, I remember telling someone, I heard this in a movie once that, you know, I could ask God to forgive my dad and to forgive me, but I couldn't forgive my dad. So I'm like, dad, maybe you could have this relationship with God, or you could be forgiven by him or by other people, but I can't right now. I'm still struggling with this. And that went on for a long time. And I remember, guys, I used to think that I had moved forward. Uh, I used to think that I had forgiven him because I had allowed him back into my life. But then, <clears throat> excuse me, but then uh, I realized when he would call, I would turn right into that, back into that bitter, angry person that wanted him to feel the pain that he was causing me. So I would inflict pain back onto him or say things that were nasty back to him. And in essence, I was just doing the same thing he was doing to me. So that was really hard um, and a, a hard lesson for me. But it wasn't until my dad, like I said, reached his lowest point. It was around that time when Dwight Gooden gave him that call that I had um, began to understand more about empathy. And I saw my dad at his lowest point. He tried to end his own life. He took a bunch of pills and, uh, and thankfully, you know, didn't die and he survived but I started to actually feel sorry for him for the first time in maybe in my life, my adult life with him. 
because I realized that this was a man who God loved just as much as he loved me. And empathy, my definition of empathy is just seeing perspectives from the other person's point of view. It doesn't mean you're um, agreeing with that perspective, but you begin to see another side of things, right? Of what a person's feeling, what a person's thinking. Um, we've had to practice a lot of empathy over the past couple of years, just in, in this life that we've been living in, in this world of COVID and everything else. But with my dad, I finally had to that point where I saw him as the same view as the way God saw him. Um, and I kind of put me and him on this pedestal where I always thought because I had accomplished all these things and lived this good life and married to my wife and had a daughter and all these things that I was kind of up here on the pedestal of success. And my dad was way down here because of all the failures that had happened and all the struggles that he happened with that he went through. But then when he, my dad's at his lowest point and I start to see him differently, I realize we're actually the same people. Uh, all of us are in, in God's eyes. Like he loves us all equally. And that changed everything. And uh, it came to the point where I was, uh, I realized I had to verbally tell him I forgave him. Um, but I also realized it wasn't for him. It was for me. Um, that's the thing I think we get um, sort of confused on with forgiveness is it's never about the other person when it comes to forgiveness. It's about ourselves. Um, when we choose not to forgive and we choose to try and hang on to anger and bitterness, that's where um, we're the ones that get stuck in bondage or in these chains. Um, you guys might know this quote from Lewis Smedes. He's an author and theologian. And he says, uh, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner is me. And I just, when I heard that, when I read that, it's in my book, I, I, I plaster it all over social quite often, just because that's really the essence of what forgiveness is about. And, and one other thing too, as followers of Christ, which I know all three of us are, it's really a non-negotiable. <laughs> if you read the scriptures, Jesus makes it pretty clear that if you don't forgive, that's not a good thing. Like he'll, he's literally coming to the point where he's saying, I never knew you. Um, we are called to forgive every single time because God does that for us. And, um, and that's a non-negotiable. And so that also, again, we're human and we mess up, but that was a hard thing to grasp. But when you really comes down to it as followers of Christ, we're trying to be Christ-like forgiveness, I think is the essence of who Jesus was. And, uh, we're never more like Christ. I think when we forgive and when we choose to forgive those that hurt us. Were you ever tempted to, to not take those calls? Or to kind of quite often. Yeah. Yeah. Just kind of, I know, at least for me, sometimes I'll handle things where I'll just avoid. Oh yeah. Situation. So you just avoid, maybe he's done that and just not having, you've moved on with your life. You have a great job. You have a wife, you have a daughter. Were you ever tempted to just like kind of ignore him and, and not have him be part of your life? Absolutely. Um, and there were moments where I kind of did that. Um, my dad is very old fashioned in the sense that he's never been on the internet. Um, he doesn't have uh, any kind of smartphone. This is to this day, by the way, and he's 70 years old. Um, he does, he reads newspapers. He watches television. He loves his St. Louis Cardinals, by the way, Matt. So he'll get a kick out of us talking. He loves his St. Louis Cardinals. Um, he talks on the phone, the old fashioned way. And, uh, and that's the way we communicate. And so I knew when I was wanting to maintain control of this relationship, even though he was my dad. And when he was in his uh, very low moments back in the mid two thousands. Um, and in fact, I remember when the Mets and Cardinals were in the NLCS in 2006. Um, I don't think you were there yet, right. In 06, but that was a back and forth series. And the Cardinals obviously ended up winning it. And the Mets were probably a better team on paper and had a better season in the regular season. But my dad and I, when he was drinking, even though we had sports as a commonality, he would use that against me when our teams were battling in, in, in big time events. And so when the Mets and Cardinals are facing each other, he's calling me up drinking and telling me how bad of a person I am and how, you know, my team stinks and all these things. I'm using the rated G version of what he says to me. Um, and there were moments after that where I said, dad, I just, I'm done. I, I just can't deal with this anymore. And so Around that time, I remember I decided not to take any more calls from him. And I just started writing him letters like it was the 1800s. And I would write him letters. There was a time when he got a DUI and he went to jail for like four or five months in 2007. 
And I just said, this is the way you're going to communicate with, with me. If you want to get in touch with me, you can write me a letter. That's it. I don't want to talk to you on the phone. I don't want to see you. So I, it's weird, Matt. It's your dad, right? So I think I was always trying to hang on to a little bit of the relationship because I felt like if I completely cut off my father and never spoke to him ever, that something was, I, I just felt like that wasn't something I wanted to do as much as I did want to do. I just couldn't go there. But I did cut off quite a bit of communication from him. And I, I wanted to dictate the relationship because I had a daughter who was very young, two, three years old. And I just didn't want her to grow up seeing the, the, um, the dysfunction that we had. And uh, so I didn't talk to him for a while. I would say maybe six months to close to a year on the phone. Um, finally, after he got out of jail and kind of trying to rehab his life a little bit, I started to welcome him back. But those phone calls, <laughs> that's one of the chapters. It's called those dreaded phone calls. Um, those were a lot more frequent than I would have liked, I think. But at some point I had to kind of stop and try to, I, the big thing for me was I, I'm, I wanted to control the relationship here. And he, on his end, that was his power, was want, wanting to control the relationship, even if it meant um, verbally abusing us or saying some things that he knew he would regret. Um, and I had to fight that battle quite a bit. So yeah, there were times though, but I, I just couldn't come to the point where I could do that. Now, my brother, my little brother, I have two younger brothers. My youngest brother cut him off for like two or three years and didn't talk to him. So he was able to do that. For me, I just, I just couldn't do it. So where are we now with your dad? What's the, what's the latest? So we're in a much better place than we were during those years. Um, it's funny. I, I tell people, and even in the book, I, I made sure that we didn't name the chapter on the front um, reconciliation, but there is a chapter in the book. You have to actually read it to get to it um, because I don't think forgiveness always means reconciliation. It just sometimes the, the, yeah. it's too broke, right? Sometimes it is not repairable, that relationship. Um, forgiveness is always possible, but reconciliation isn't. Um, thankfully for my dad and I, we were able to reconcile. Um, that day in 2013, when Doc Gooden called my dad and he ended up in a hospital after taking those pills. Um, that was the last time he had a drink. And so eight plus years later, uh, he's still sober, which is just an insanely awesome miracle from God when you think about it. But he's sober. Um, interestingly enough, though, for a lot of people who are listening, I want people to, to understand he's not walking with Christ um, still. So please pray for his salvation, because that's something that we pray about a lot. And um, we talk about a lot. He's really more open to having conversations about it. He's just still hanging on, I think, to maybe some pride and some things that he grew up with. But um, he's sober. And quite honestly, guys, for years and years after I became a Christian, my prayer was never for my dad to come to know Jesus. I wish it was, um, but it wasn't. My prayer was for my dad to get sober. And that prayer was answered. And uh, he got sober. Um, he's reconciled with me and my two brothers. Um, the relationship is, uh, I would, I would call it good. It's not great. Um, he's still a very strange man, as I say, and he still lives in the 1970s and eighties with the way he communicates, but, um, he's sober. And, uh, like I said, that was the prayer that I, I prayed for. And, and so our relationship is good. It usually reflects around sports. You know, I talked to him a couple of days ago and all we talked about was whether the Cardinals were going to make a run to try and get the wild card. And maybe the Mets were going to do that too. And um, we talked about the start of the NFL season and that's really it. It's very surface level conversation, but I'm just glad we're having them in a healthier way than we did before. So how did this experience growing up, Jason, with, with the battles that, that your dad endured throughout your childhood affect how you parented? Like when you met your daughter the very first day, did that impact, you know, did your childhood impact the way you were going to raise her? Very much so, Leslie. Um, it's funny, I wanted to become a dad in the worst way, probably since I was in college. Um, I just, I think I dreamed about becoming a dad to be able to give to my daughter what my dad did not give to me and my brothers. And, uh, you know, things that I think a child deserves to get from their dad, uh, I never got. And to this day, I still haven't got and that's okay. Um, God's been gracious. And I'm I'm glad that uh, I've been on the journey that I've been on, but I knew that there was this um, chain that could be broken and kind of this pivot that I could take and not repeat the errors of my dad. And listen, I haven't been perfect by any means, 
Um, but I wanted to become a dad in the worst way. And certainly when Sarah was born, you know, that's a whole nother story. We can get into it if you want, but that was almost four and a half years of infertility that my wife and I walked through after we got married in 1999. And you talk about a guy who's in his own broken relationship with his dad, who's yearning to become a father and whose wife can't get pregnant. Uh, that's what we were living in for a while. And honestly, that really is what led me to the Lord initially was this, I don't know, genie that lived in the sky that might be able to answer my prayer of becoming a dad if I turned to him. You know, initially that was really the relationship and how it started with God. Then you realize that's kind of not how it works, but that was how I viewed God. And that's how much I wanted to become a dad. So when Sarah was born, um, June 6, 2004, like it's one of the top few days of my life because it was an answer to prayer for both my wife and I. Um, It was the start of this new journey as a dad. And you guys know you have kids and you know the the sort of gift that comes with becoming parents and responsibility. Um, And I felt that. And I felt that very early on. But I also saw this responsibility as a new Christian that I could really begin to teach and raise her to know Jesus. And uh, that's been my greatest joy, if I'm being honest now, 17 years later. Uh, She's in her senior year of high school and getting ready to graduate next year. I can't believe it. And and we only have one. So when this is done, we're empty nesters here and she goes to college and we move on. You guys got a couple behind (laughs) your oldest. So you get to, you know, get to live through this a little bit more. But this is a big year for us, but it also has shown me how, how important it's been over the years. And I, again, I know I haven't been perfect, but I've always been intentional about raising her um, to know Jesus, uh, praying with her, um, reading scripture with her, especially when she was younger and laying that seed down and, uh, and watching it kind of sow and, and, and reap and grow in the way. And, uh, you know, she is such an amazing kid. And now it's, it's really neat to watch her get ready for college and look at schools and kind of be intentional about her faith and how she leads as a teammate playing volleyball and how she leads in the school. She's starting up an FCA huddle and going to be the huddle leader up here in the Northeast where it's not always welcomed the way it might be in the South. So it's a really awesome thing. I can look back at now 17 years later and see um, some of the fruit of that, but I definitely Leslie um, think about how that relationship with my own dad affected the way I parent my daughter. And I told Sarah, uh, my daughter, I said, uh, you know, I, I was pretty open with her by the time she hit eight, nine, 10 years old about Papa Joe's issues is what we call my dad. And um, we kind of were really open with her about, you know, why we don't have alcohol in the house and why mom and dad don't drink and why, um, you know, obviously the, the faith aspect of why it's important to believe in Christ. But there were certain things that I had to teach her from a very young age. And still to this day, I think those those have been real, um, I don't know, important factors in her life and some of the directions that she's chosen. Mostly good, I'll say. <laughs> That's good. That's yeah. good. Let's get into the ESPN aspect of it a little bit. Yeah. Talk to me about just kind of your time of working at ESPN and some of the things you loved and maybe some of the things that you didn't love and kind of some of maybe a story or two of, of people that you came in contact with that had an impact on your life. Yeah. Um, first of all, I mean, the fact that we're sitting here talking about me having worked there is uh, still kind of mind blowing to me. Um, I mean, I, I dreamed about that as a kid, not really to work at ESPN. Um, I dreamed about working at channel 13 in Albany, New York as the sportscaster. Like that was the level because I just thought ESPN was so far out of the reach, uh, attainable, you know, the attainable reach of getting that far that I was like, that's never going to happen. Um, but you know, the trajectory of your path and your journey kind of take you to different opportunities and you get there. And I, I'll say this in 17 years there, I don't think I had a really bad day. Um, you had, you had tough days, tough bosses, tough moments. Um, you know, you might get a bad review here and there, which happened to me about halfway through, but you know, I always had this kind of mindset. I don't know how you felt Matt when you were playing baseball, but like, look what I get to do every day. Like, yeah, you take it seriously and you want to be the best that you can, but I'm going to work and, and watching sports and getting paid for it, covering sports and getting paid for it, producing sports and getting paid for it. Like, are you kidding me? Um, 
you know, there are a lot worse jobs than the one I had. And, uh, but it was also a dream because like I said, that kid as a six, seven, eight year old who was watching sports and keeping stats and notebooks, like I got to put that into practice and actually use that at ESPN. Uh, it was an amazing place to work. It really was. Um, you know, there were times where, uh, like everybody, like I said, everybody has a tough day, uh, or tough people that you work with. Um, but I never saw a lot of what, even maybe some of the media portrayed after I was gone from there, um, they'd been through their own things that publicly that they've had to work through, but I couldn't, I don't have a bad thing to say about them. I really don't. I mean, it was just such a, a gift and a blessing to work there. I mean, they provided so many amazing opportunities, even post ESPN to have this conversation with you, right? A lot of, in a lot of ways, a lot of this won't happen because I work, I, because I had happened to have worked there for 17 years. Um, but I got to listen Walt Disney owns ESPN. So we got to be cast members for 17 years. And I got to take my kid to Disney for free, probably 10 of those 17 years. Uh, she has no idea how spoiled she was <laughs> with the fact that I got to work there. Um, but it, it was the everyday people too. I mean, I hear so much from athletes when I talk to them about, you know, what do you miss most about playing? And they're like the clubhouse and the guys and the people you're around with every day. And that's what I miss the most about working at ESPN is the people that you got to come around with every, come, come alongside with every day and do life with and, and work and, and kind of come together for a common cause and purpose. And we were all coming from different backgrounds and different, um, you know, aspects of life and different upbringings. And, and yet here we were all together at ESPN. Um, I'll tell you one person that really had an amazing impact on my life was Bob Lee. Um, Bob is a, is an out, outward facing an anchor at ESPN. And a lot of people would know him from watching outside the lines or sports center. And uh, Bob was one of those original 79ers, as they called him. He ESPN came out, came on board and came on the air in September, September 7th, 1979. And uh, Bob was there, I think, September 10th, 1979. So he was there from day two or day three, and he saw this thing get built up from the ground to the, the worldwide leader. And I got to work with him for five or six years uh, when he was really in the prime of his journey in the mid 2000s at ESPN on a show called Outside the Lines. And Outside the Lines was a very popular show, um, but it was also a really tough show to work on because they tackled topics that weren't featured on SportsCenter's top 10. You know, Sports Center featured what was going on, um, you know, on the field, uh, outside the lines, like it's, you know, aptly named title is featuring what's happening away from the game. Uh, tough topics like race and steroids and abuse and, um, you know, just tons of really difficult topics. But then you get a guy like Bob Lee, who is just such a pro's pro. And I remember the first day, my first day I came onto that show and we were covering, uh, I think we were covering Steve Spurrier coaching change from Florida to the Washington. And, uh, and we booked a guest and came up with a show topic and put it together. And Bob comes up to me and he says, nice job, kid. Now I was 30 years old, but <laughs> just the way he said it, right. It's like a manager talking to a player, like, nice job, kid. You're going to be, you're going to do good here. And we spent the next four years working together. And, uh, the greatest compliment he ever gave me was, He's like, if you want to be great and be a producer here at ESPN, you can do it. You have what it takes. And, uh, you know, we called Bob Lee the general for obvious reasons with his name. Um, and the general, you know, he was just that. He was the general for us. And uh, he kind of led, uh, but he led in such a wonderful way where he empowered other people to be a part of that show. And Bob was one of those guys where he could have easily said, this is my show. I've been here since 1979. I know what I'm doing. I don't need your guys' help. Just make sure that I don't look bad when I go on TV. He could have done that. And we all would have fallen, fallen in line and said, no problem. But he didn't do that. He took his producer's advice. He empowered us all to have a say. And if we had an idea that he liked that was may have been better than his or whatever, he would, he would jump on and say, that's better. Let's do that. And uh, he was such a, uh, you know, I've been, I've been using this word a lot. He was a professional encourager. He really was. Uh, and there's a lot of those people out there. You guys are like that too. And Bob was just a professional encourager at a place where it was so cutthroat. And everybody was trying to climb the corporate ladder and be seen and have their show or their interview or their segment, you know, be praised by everybody. We all felt that. And I think that's similar in the sports world, you know, as a player too, 
but Bob was, was not just about himself. He was not just about the competition of, of um, him seeing himself as the best. He wanted to see everybody else succeed too. And uh, yeah, he was the general and he was such a great impact on my life. Thankfully, when I released my second book on leadership, there's a whole chapter about Bob in there um, about the general. And, you know, cause I just thought he leads in such a wonderful way. Um, honestly, the way Jesus led, you know, by putting others first. And I just thought, what an example from a guy who didn't need to do that. And everybody respected him and knew that he was the best there was. And yet he didn't look at himself that way. It was pretty awesome to be around. Yeah. I love that idea of, of your second book, Jason. And I mean, over that's when been something that's been really interesting to me doing this podcast is just always asking about leadership and leadership tips, because, you know, going into Matt's second career as um, an encourager, like as a baseball <laughs> hitting coach, you are, <laughs> you are mainly an encourager and Absolutely. So, you know, and a parent is an encourage. Anyway, I love leadership and I love learning from people that are also passionate about leadership. So just give us some tips, give us some wisdom. Um, I mean, you wrote a whole book about it, so I'm sure you can tell us all about, <laughs> well, I'll give you the concept. So it's called the uniform of leadership. Yeah. And the idea was how can I turn the stories and the experiences at my time at ESPN, uh, into a book. And I, I wasn't looking to write a book. I really never wanted to ever write a book, much less two, but I do get asked a lot about stories, experiences at ESPN and what that's like. And I thought, well, let's write a book about it, but I don't want the book to just be a bunch of re, you know, entertainment that, oh, look at what I got to experience and do. I really wanted it to be uh, something that people could put into practice. And so we, we, we formed the idea of the uniform of leadership, which is simply us waking up every single day and having to make a decision about who we're going to serve. Um, because leadership starts by uh, looking at the influence that we have on others and looking at the example that is Jesus who is the greatest leader that we've ever seen. And Jesus says in Matthew 20, 28, he says, I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. So if you're looking at the model of Jesus, especially as a follower of Christ, like that's leadership. That's Jesus saying, listen, I could come down here and tell you I am in charge and I'm the man. And he kind of did that in some ways, but he always did it with a humble spirit. And he always said, listen, I'm here to serve you. I am here to be with you, to take care of you, to show you the way. And, uh, you know, I did not come to, to be served, but to serve and gave his life as a ransom. So that's the example. And I thought, okay, let's think of a metaphor here of the uniform in sports. Every single day, that person who wears a uniform, Matt, you wore a uniform for many, many years. And on the front was usually the name of the team. And on the back was usually that last name. And you have to make a decision every day. Am I going to play for the, the name on the back of the jersey? Or am I going to play for the name on the front of the jersey? And it's very easy for us as the selfish humans that we all are to think about the name on the back of the jersey first. But the great leaders, the ones that are selfless, the ones that are all in on serving, play for the name on the front of the jersey first. Or in this case, play for God first, and then others second, and then ourselves third. And I tell people that model is kind of what we call an I am third model which I learned from a, a basketball team in Indiana called Indiana Wesleyan, who put this model together as their culture for their team. God first, others second, ourselves third. And I thought that's the definition of leadership that we all want to strive for. And the uniform of leadership is this metaphor that we have to kind of live through every single day. When we wake up, we make that decision. What, what way are we going to wear this uniform? Is it going to be backwards where we have the name on the front of the jersey, that's our name, or is it going to be the right way where we play for others first? And so that's really the premise of the book. And I just looked at the examples of the people that I spent time with at ESPN, like Bob Lee, and like some other people, some that are, you know, athletes and coaches. And I just looked at the lesson that they had taught me in servant leadership from my time that I spent with them. Because I think, uh, you know, I wrote that, that second book really in mind for Matt and others who are coaches who are leaders, who are influencers, to not just read for themselves, but to go through it with a team, to go through it with a small group, with questions at the end of each chapter in a way where we can all grow, not only in our faith, which I think the book can help you in that way, but to grow as leaders and using Jesus as the example. So you could be an atheist for, for you know, and still read the book and find it useful because you can look at least the, of the example of Jesus, whether you believe in him or not. And I think it was a great way 
to bring Christ into the conversation and show people how great of a leader he was in the way that he came to this earth to serve. So that's yeah. awesome. It's a skill that uh, is learned for sure. I think, I, I think that that's misunderstood oftentimes because people will say like, Oh, he's a born leader. Well, I don't agree with that phrase whatsoever. And so I think that it's a skill that we learn um, with practice and a posture of humility for sure. But it's and even if you know it, Leslie, even if you know, sort of the right way to lead, if you will, that doesn't mean you're not going to get it wrong. Like we're all going to mess up. I mean, I, I look at leadership even as influence in my home. I'm sure you guys do too. And so I'm leading my daughter every day and I realize, oh, that wasn't necessary for me to yell and scream at her at that moment. Or that wasn't a great way to lead with a, with a humble spirit by doing whatever I did. Um, so I think we know, you know, we can tell good leadership from bad leadership. I wouldn't even say bad leadership should have the word leadership in it. Um, because if you're a leader, that's what you are. You're serving others. You have influence on others. Um, and we mess that up. But I think the fact, the more that we can learn about leadership and the more that we can understand the principles of serving and giving to others, um, that can only make us better leaders because it takes ourselves out of the equation. Uh, and that's really hard, like I said, because we're selfish by nature. But it, I think it's what I see is the best way to lead. And, and leadership can look a lot of different ways. There are some great leaders who, you know, I'm sure coaches like you've been around Matt and people that you've seen that, you know, some are a lot more vocal and some are a lot more humble. You know, I think of Tony Dungy and Bill Belichick, mm -hmm. completely opposite, but both very successful, both great leaders because they're all about the team and all about others. Um, there's just some ways that different ways that people go about it. But I think if we can all get the idea that it's not about us, mm -hmm. I think it's a game changer. I really do. I agree. I agree. Okay, Jason, this has been a new question that we've just popped on to people and given it to them. Okay, if you could witness your favorite, what is your favorite miracle in the Bible and why? Oh, favorite miracle in the Bible. I should have known this was coming. I mean, it's not like I don't listen to your guys' show and it's not a part of our network. And I did not. Yes. <laughs> and then I, now I'm not prepared. Like, what's going on here? Um, my favorite miracle in the Bible, I think it's probably, it's, you know, I've been reading a lot about, um, Paul and, and certainly the, the impact of his life. And, you know what, I mean, it's, it's kind of the road to Damascus moment. That is a cliche that we all use, but when you truly look at the life of Paul and the fact that this guy was killing Christians, he didn't just hate them. He, he was killing Christians and he encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus in a way that changes his life forever. Not just to the point where he doesn't go around killing Christians anymore, no, he completely turns the other way and says, I want to go help people know about Jesus. And to the point where he records, you know, half of the New Testament. And, you know, if you read Ephesians or Philippians or Galatians, like these letters, Timothy, that he wrote, um, these are some of the most impactful scriptures you'll ever read in God's word. And so to me, that's about as miraculous as you can get in terms of the impact and the power that Jesus can have on a person's life. And, you know, you meet a lot of people, all of us do, who've had our own little personal Paul moments, small Paul moments, like we're not killing Christians, but we're, we were, we were lost and now we're found. Right. And really when you come, come back to that idea of God saving us and sending his son to die for us, like Paul is that perfect example of how nobody is lost in this world, as long as you're alive, because Jesus can save you. Um, just look at Paul's life. So for me, I think Paul, I've been thinking about his life a lot. Um, not because, you know, I'm, I'm in a bad spot or anything, but just as you meditate on scripture, you start to look at truly what this guy was and what he became is pretty incredible. I mean, it's, it's insane how amazing this man has been as a, as a champion for Christ, <laughs> When just a few years earlier, he was out not quite doing that. So it's pretty cool. That is cool. That is cool. It's an amazing story when you get, when you really think about it. <laughs> All right. So if you ever made it to the end of our, one of our podcasts, you know. Which I have, Matt. I'll, I would like you to know I have. <laughs> okay. So, um, but I don't right. know the answer, but ask it anyways. I know the question. Okay. So you, you, you get to have a tape. How about this? I'll frame it for you. 
of people that you've interviewed or athletes that you've come across mm. in your and Daryl Strawberry's already there. <laughs> no, yeah, he's number one, clearly. Yeah. Daryl's <laughs> at the head of the, of the table. table. <laughs> okay. Okay. Who's there and what are you eating? And you can bring you can bring up to 10 of your favorite athletes. Okay. That's Daryl. I like or, this question. They don't have to be athletes. They can be just people you've interviewed or come in contact with. Okay. This is cool. Um, whatever. I'll keep it kind of close to athletes because I would start honestly with my middle brother, Chris, because he's the one that led me to Christ and he's the smartest guy I know. He's, he knows more about the Bible than anybody. He's a PhD in biblical studies and he's teaching people about Jesus. So like, I would want him there because he has a lot of the answers that I don't uh, yep. about God if people had questions. Um, but I think from an athletic standpoint, so a name I haven't given you guys, I did mention that I grew up a Celtics fan. Um, Larry Bird was my other sports hero. Um, I never met Larry. Uh, I never got a chance to, I, I think I was in a room with him one time at the basketball hall of fame, but I was too nervous to walk up to him and he was talking to other people. And I'm like, I, I can't do this. this. That's Larry Bird. Um, so I didn't talk to him. Uh, I might regret that because I don't know if I'll ever come in contact or have an opportunity to meet him. But I would like to invite him to the table, even okay. though I don't think he's an outgoing or a professing man of faith. I just think he would be, and I wouldn't regret it this time, Matt. I would ask him a million questions about basketball. Not right. like Daryl, where we didn't talk about the Mets. Larry Bird would have get every question I've ever had about basketball and playing for the Celtics and all that. So he'd be one for sure. Um, I'm a big Dallas Cowboys fan. Um, I don't know why, because they're clearly uh, have been struggling the last 26 years. Uh, but I think I would invite a couple Cowboys as well. Um, I loved as a kid, like 10, nine, 10 years old. I loved Tony Dorsett uh, in the eighties. I loved him. Number 33, I, I, him and Larry Bird wore the same number. So 33 became my number uh, as a kid growing up. And then as I got into my teen years and in my twenties, Emmett Smith became my favorite athlete, much, much less football player. And uh, I love Emmett. I got to meet Emmett a couple of times. And uh, there's a great story in my book about that. But I would invite Emmett and Tony Dorsett. So we got them guys, those guys down. Um, I'm trying to think of something different or unique. Uh, I think I'd invite somebody like, um, like Tim Tebow. I just think he's a fascinating guy. I've never interviewed him. I have gotten to meet him. But he's like otherworldly famous in such a weird way. You know, like he, he was great in college. He got to the NFL and he had one good year. Then he was kind of banished to the bench and told he could never play quarterback again. So he goes and plays baseball and whether he was a good baseball player or not, I'll let you guys decide that because you know, baseball better than I do, but he made it to double a, um, which is not easy. Um, right. and he had to have at least been doing something right to get to that level, even if he wasn't deserving of it. And he's also, uh, a New York times best-selling author. You know, he's got these plat this platform where all it feels like to me, all he wants to do is talk about Christ. He's a commentator on college football with ESPN. I mean, there's so many things. He married a supermodel and is has this amazing, um, you know, night to shine thing for, um, uh, you know, for for young people. And it's just such a cool thing with his ministry. He's just fascinating to me. And, uh, and he's so famous. Like, it's weird. To, to say those words, but he's just so famous to the point where I would love to ask him, like, what's it like to be in that world where you, you, every, you have to watch every single step you take and people are watching you and looking for you to make a mistake to, to rip you apart. And I don't know, I think he'd just be a really fascinating guy to, to talk to and spend a few minutes with certainly have a meal with, um, you asked me what I would eat. I would, I would probably have some sort of barbecue um, really? for sure. I'm not the well, guy I'm from New York. I did uh, not expect barbecue. All I ate when I was younger was pasta and Italian food and I'm kind of okay. over it. All I mean, right. I like it, but, no, that's fine. um, now I'm a barbecue guy. Uh, okay. if you want to take me to somewhere in Nashville or somewhere in Kansas city or one of those great barbecue places, let's go. What do you, um, what, what, what's, what kind? So we got to have brisket. Yeah. Jackson, Nashville. I've been to, we got to have brisket. Um, I love chicken obviously. And, uh, you know, probably some, macaroni and cheese maybe and uh i don't know whatever else you want to throw on there that works for me all right barbecue all right yeah that's easy you're totally expecting italian weren't you hey yeah yeah <laughs> i was i mean i'll be honest from new york romano you said pizza 
I like yeah. pizza. How's that? I don't want to have pizza at a table like with my uh, friends like that, though, you know? So it has to be a little <laughs> more upscale. So we went barbecue. All right, nice barbecue. <laughs> Good job. All right. Well, how did we do? Did we do okay? Oh, you guys are great. <laughs> I told you, don't worry about being professional. Let's just have a conversation. And uh, you guys have been awesome. I'm just, I'm so happy that you have agreed to do your show. I'm just being honest here. I know this is hard. And I know there's some weeks where you're man, like, man, the last thing I want to do is do a podcast right now because life is just crazy busy. But you guys have committed to it and your show is awesome. And I hope you're getting feedback from people because I know I get a lot of feedback on uh, on Table 40 and I'm I'm grateful for you guys. I really am. Oh, well, this we is appreciate fun. It. We this love it. Fun. We, it's been fun. Like I said, awesome. I've learned a lot about friends, friends of mine where I'm like, oh, I'm glad I didn't know that about them. <laughs> So. that's what's great about podcasts you invite your friends on and you yeah. talk to them and you get to ask them a million questions it's like why didn't i ask them this when we hung yeah. out for 12 years as teammates but yeah i mean some of your interviews i especially like the mike sweeney one that you guys did with him and his wife recently um there's been so many i've texted leslie how many times have i texted you that yeah. was a great conversation so keep doing what you're doing i love all the different people you've had on and the connections and do you guys feel this way sometimes for me, I was like, we're going to run out of people. I don't yeah. know who we're going to keep talking to. And then you're like, wait a minute. I know this person or this person yeah. knows this person or, oh, look who just came into my life. And now we can have them on the podcast. So God's been providing more guests than I ever thought. It seems like that way with you too, I was, right? I told Leslie a while ago, I was like, we're going to run out of friends. Like I'm running out of baseball people. And then, like you said, you just, you think, oh, I bet I could find a way to get in touch with them or. Yeah, but like you played like 15, 16 years in the big leagues yeah. and all of those different teammates, there's going to be this bound and coaches and people who coach coaches. And I mean, just, yeah, you got a lot of people in your life. So you yeah. don't realize it until you start doing something like podcasting yeah. that there's way more people than, uh, than we may have thought, you know, had come across in our, our past in our life. So, you Keep know, doing what you're doing. What's been fun too, Jason is tonight. We had dinner with the Roberts. So Brian and Diana Roberts. Yes. You're in San Diego. Who were on the show, right? They were yeah. on last year. Oh. And so we reconnected on the show and then we're in Sarasota right now. So we were like, hey, let's let's eat dinner together. So we went over and had dinner with them. Haven't seen them face to face in like 10 years. Wow. And then we did have dinner with the Sweeney's and he does make the best steak in San Diego. It was fantastic. Yeah. So and that's like, has, that's like following up on the podcast. That's good. That's a good report here. Been, okay. It's been fantastic. So if ever we're together, we'll take you to barbecue. Yeah. Oh, let's do it. I'm going to come down and see you guys somehow. We'll figure out a way. Well, this is fun. Yeah, we appreciate it. Thank Absolutely. You. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Table 40 with Matt and Leslie Holiday, part of the Sports Spectrum Podcast Network. For more stories on sports intersecting with faith, visit sportsspectrum.com.